you can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade, or at least grab an extra latte. After getting a Chime checking account with features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe, no minimum balance requirements, and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at Chime.com goals24. That's Chime.com goals24. Chime. Feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. Members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, a nonpartisan private charitable foundation that advances ideas and supports institutions to promote a better world. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Next Gen America founder Tom Steyer and other leaders joined the Post to discuss climate change, the economy, and how policymakers can reimagine the ways we tackle these challenges. Let's listen. Good afternoon and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Francis Steedsell as a senior writer at the Washington Post. And I'm very pleased to welcome today an economist, Mariana Matsukato. She's a professor at University College London. She's the author of The Value of Everything. And she has a new book coming out next year, Mission Economy. Mariana, a very warm welcome to Washington Post Live. Thank you. It's great to be here. Delighted to have you. Mariana, let's start with one of the, the, the names you've been called, which was the scariest, the world's scariest economist, <laughs> I believe. <laughs> Tell me um, how you earned that moniker and uh, who should be frightened of you? Well, the funny thing is that what was actually written in the article was, was wonderful. And then some editor put the title. So you should always worry about when editors take over. And the, the woman author of the article then complained that the male editors <laughs> called the woman economist scary. Anyway, I mean, you know, I don't think any interesting things happen when they happen out of fear. So, you know, being scary is, is not positive in that sense. Um, I'm sort of an eternal optimist. But I do think that the current situation of the global economy, even pre-COVID, was in fact quite scary. And the fact that we are so unprepared to deal with any form of crisis, whether it's financial, climate, or health-related, should also be scary. But again, what we actually need is a new way of thinking, a new you know, economic thinking, really, because so much of our policy is informed by economic theory. But if we can bring real purpose and a positive mission, <laughs> hence the title of the new book, uh, to how we design not only policy, but the partnership between public and private actors, I think there's a real uh, interesting path that we have ahead of ourselves. But because I'm quite uh, a stark, I think, sometimes with uh, how I condemn the current state of affairs, I guess that can sound scary sometimes. So just dig a little bit more deeply into that if you can for me. What are the underlying sure. assumptions? about capitalism that we need to rethink in order to create a more sustainable system going ahead? Well, sure. And I mean, if you'd like, I can list what is actually scary then about the current form of capitalism. We have <laughs> okay. a, form of, a form of finance, which is basically financing itself. Uh, a, a very high percentage, almost three-fourths of, of global finance, ends up back in the financial sector. Um, in finance, insurance, and real estate. And you know, the acronym there is FIRE. So that's quite handy to say that it's not only the planet that's on fire in terms of climate change, as Greta Thornburg often says, but literally our financial sector is on, fine, on fire because it's been financing itself. And, and, you know, that was very much the cause of the financial crisis. If you look at uh, just in, in terms of the bubble in the housing market that was created, but also in the financial sector more widely, that's because we've been, you know, financializing actually our economy. But then you'd think that fine, then the problem is only finance, but actually industry itself has become over-financialized. So just in the last 10 years, the global 500 companies, uh, sorry, the Fortune 500 companies have spent over $4 trillion, that's 12 zeros, uh, on just buying back their own shares to boost stock prices, stock options, and executive pay. And, and then we have really a government sector, which unfortunately has bought into this idea that it's there to at best fix problems, <laughs> fix what economists call market failures. So by definition, it's always too little and too late. It's not in a proactive mode of actually shaping and creating an economy, co-creating an economy alongside the private sector, which actually serves you know, interests of citizens in terms of creating an economy that's more inclusive, more sustainable, and really you know, driven by the need to solve problems that we have. 
And so these fundamental problems that we have in finance and business and government, I think, in the end, you know, have to be solved if we're going to, you know, build back better, for example. But the problem is that the underlying theory of capitalism, so this is where kind of theory and practice uh, feed back onto each other, has been, you know, very much the problem, both because of how we understand value. So we mm. continue to pretend that value is created just in the private sector and the role of the public sector is to facilitate, enable, de-risk that process as opposed to be an active co-creator of value, or that would also include citizen organizations or trade unions, you know, have created huge amounts of value in the history of capitalism. They got us the weekend. We all enjoy the weekend. That right. came about because people fought for it. The eight hour workday, that was, you know, part of the shaping of the kind of economy we have. And that's a social innovation, one could call it that. Um, but then that has also informed in terms of theory, as I was mentioning, this idea that we have to wait for problems in the economy, whether it's too little investment in something like research and development for government to come in and you know, invest in that, or too much is happening, so we're creating too much pollution, government should step in and create a carbon tax. And even though these different failures exist, by positioning and framing and designing policy as bandaging things up, literally putting different types of patches on the system, just simply will not get us the kind of economy and society that we need. And definitely it won't get us the 17 sustainable development goals, which every country, including of course the United States, signed up to in 2015. So help me think through these things in terms of COVID now. Um, essential workers are people like grocery store stackers, um, some healthcare workers, uh, public transportation workers. Um, suddenly we're dubbing them essential, but they've been underpaid and have had very little uh, sustainable forms of um, social services. How do we rebalance that in this age? What, is your, your, what do your theories say we should do looking ahead? Well, first, I mean, I think it's a really positive, uh, uh, how do you say, outcome of COVID that we've woken up and have started to call, you know, workers that are so critical for the economy essential. And, but mm -hmm. the problem is that if, if that simply leads us to kind of congratulating those workers or clapping them as we do in London on Thursdays, I'm sure in different parts of the world, it was a different evening or, or every day, you know, at a certain time of the day, that's, that's sort of an insult, isn't it? You know, clapping a group of workers who actually have systemically and structurally been undervalued and, as you just said, underpaid. Um, and so the real question is, how can change now come about because we have woken up to just how important these uh, people, you know, uh, men and women are? And one of the key issues really is that how we measure value, for example, in GDP, which is how we measure growth, right, in economies, gross domestic product, you know, has completely confused price with value. So we only put into GDP those activities that actually have a price. So for example, if you marry your babysitter, GDP will go down. <laughs> I'll let your viewers figure that one out. If we pollute, <laughs> uh, GDP goes up. Right, so we've known about these problems for a long time. Feminist economists have been talking about how important the caring economy is. You know, work that's done at home for caring for the elderly, for neighbors, for children, um, and that's not valued. So we don't, you know, you know, because often it's done for free, and so we end up under-resourcing that and not giving people enough, say, leave in order to do those types of activities. But the real issue also is that a lot of what the state then does around those areas, for example, a public health infrastructure or a public education system, just think how important during the lockdown period um, has been for public education to be well-resourced, to be able to overcome the digital divide and to use the full power of you know, digitalization to make sure that all students of all backgrounds continue to really have their human right to be educated. Um, we don't know how to value the outcome of those activities simply because they are often, at least in many countries that have you know, proper welfare states, free. So we know how to calculate the input, the cost, say, of the nurses or of the school teachers. Uh, and that's why you often hear the word public expenditure, public spending, right, as opposed to public investment. Um, and we don't know how to measure the outcome. So almost by definition, we don't know, for example, how to measure productivity of these essential services because we haven't figured out how to measure the output. We only know the input, which is quite striking because, you know, productivity is output per input. 
And if you only know how to cost the input and not know how to reimagine also the kind of output that we need, because it's not just about the, the you know, existence of a hospital or of a school system or a, or a healthcare system, it's its quality. Is it actually serving citizens uh, in a proper way? Well, you know, then we're in trouble if we don't know how to value that outcome. Um, and, you know, what's also quite striking, I don't know, well, surely you remember the financial crisis, which happened in, you know, between 2007, 2008. And in 2009, I still remember that um, Lloyd uh, Blankfein, the, the head of Goldman Sachs, made a statement that Goldman Sachs workers were the most productive in the world. Um, and, you know, you might laugh because the bank had just been bailed out at the time, $10 billion in a bailout scheme from the U.S. government. Um, but he was serious. And he's right. In terms of how we value our economy, if you have a group of workers who are being overpaid or you know, overcharging for what they're doing in terms of the investment bank or extracting a lot of value from the economy and hence making a lot of income from it, if we then confuse price with value, simply because that sector is earning a lot of money, we end up thinking it's creating a lot of value, both in terms of how it's entered into GDP, but also the narrative, the self-confidence, the fact that, you know, again, the head of an investment bank that had just been bailed out because it also helped cause the crisis, which saw the whole financial system uh, kind of come to its knees and the governments globally having saved really capitalism from falling apart back then. Um, and yet he could, you know, make this very bold, confident statement. So I think it's also a question of, you know, where security is in the system, who has the confidence to call themselves a value creator and a wealth creator. And so there's a self-fulfilling prophecy. If we measure things wrong, we, you know, that also attributes a certain value creating potential in a very skewed way. I and mean, it's not a shared concept. Marianne, when I think of right now of the companies that are doing well, they tend to be high-end, right? High-end leisure wear, high-end uh, outdoor, outdoor uh, patio heaters, um, Amazon delivery companies, things like that that were already doing well. Um, we don't seem, if you look immediately outside your window, um, to be heading in the direction you're talking about, despite the fact we're calling these workers essential workers. Well, you know, first of all, I, I think it's always important to remember that there's differences in what's actually happening out there, both in the business community and in different types of government organizations. Um, I found it really interesting that some of the countries that did best in terms of their ability to govern this crisis were developing countries, though, that had actually invested, for example, within their ability, the kind of public sector capacity uh, to, to deal with all sorts of problems. And that includes Kerala. Uh, you know, a region in India and Vietnam. These are two countries that have been talked about, you know, by the media and by, and by researchers really to better understand how they were able to, uh, you know, to, to manage this moment as they did. And if you really look at how that happened, it, it does have a lot to do with investing within their own structures um, to, to handle the crisis in terms of also the links between the scientific community and government in terms of understanding also how to do a test and trace system that was adequate, but also the trust that was developed with uh, citizens, which was on the back also of previous crises that they had, which they learned from as opposed to ignoring it. Um, and so, you know, um, so anyway, so there's different ways in which governments have reacted. In the UK, for example, we outsourced a lot of the capacity to the consulting companies. So Deloitte is doing our test and trace and actually failing quite miserably along the way with it. But also in the business community, there's been a very different approach, for example, to how companies have, um, have interacted, for example, with recovery funds. In France, for example, it was really interesting. President Macron said, we're not here to simply bail out the companies that need help, we're here to help transform them. And so both Renault, the car manufacturer, and uh, Air France, in order to access the recovery funds, because these were you know, two sectors that were hardly hit, but to be honest, almost every sector was hardly hit, as you said, except uh, Amazon and some few uh, luxury goods, perhaps. Um, they, they had to commit to lowering their carbon emissions in order to access the recovery funds. Um, or similarly, in Denmark and in Austria, they um, said, we're, we're, we're not going to simply give out money, you know, in terms of the recovery funds to companies that have had a history of evading and avoiding tax. Um, and in the U.S. also with the CARE Act, the Coronavirus Act, um, you know, there was an admission that, you know, we have to 
make sure that the funds that do go to the companies uh, aren't simply used as dividend you know, uh, payments or share buybacks. Um, and so there have been you know, some spots of enlightenment in terms of how also the public-private relationship can be structured. So talk to me a little bit about the role of competition here. You've talked about the need for um, a free coronavirus vaccine across the world. Um, but there are many people who would say that competition, driving competition among the companies that came up with these vaccines was, was crucial. How, how would you have re-engineered what went on in the creation of vaccines? How would you like to have seen it done? Well, first of all, I mean, when we look at vaccines, we should really also just broaden our gaze to the whole health uh, sector in terms of how we innovate within it. There's huge amounts of you know, public money, for example, in the US, the National Institutes of Health spend every year close to 40 uh, billion just on uh, you know, health innovation. And, uh, and of course, there's lots of you know, private pharmaceutical research companies like the ones that are in the media these, uh, these days, like Pfizer, of course, is, is, you know, innovates, but they innovate within an ecosystem. And what we've gotten wrong in the past, and we can't get wrong now with the vaccine, is that how we've then governed that innovation system has been really lacking. For example, intellectual property rights, patents, um, are often abused. They're often too wide. They're just used for strategic reasons to keep competitors far away, as opposed to really doing what a patent should do. Uh, they are too strong, so hard to license. They're too upstream, so the tools for research are being uh, patented as opposed to just the downstream up product. And so, you know, people have talked about this, but we just haven't managed to change it. And, and it's quite striking that even in a sector which receives so much, uh, not only public investment, but a public subsidy in terms of the patent, right? Because a patent is actually a 20-year monopoly that the state grants the private sector. What the state gets in return is diffusion of that knowledge once the patent is up, as opposed to the secrecy, for example, that we had during the Middle Ages. But if in the meantime, the patents are badly governed, then you don't even get that diffusion later because you've stifled the process of knowledge sharing. And so what's really critical right now with the vaccine is that we learn from these problems. And you know, this is why the World Health Organization, for example, on the back of um, a, a push really from the Costa Rican government, have been arguing for having um, a voluntary pool for health technology uh, around the vaccine, which would actually pool the patent. So there's a real knowledge sharing. And they use a, a word which I really love, which is collective intelligence. How do we foster collective intelligence by how patents are actually structured so we're not just racing towards a vaccine in one place, but sharing as much as we can the knowledge globally around that. Um, you mentioned the World Health Organization. I'm sorry, I didn't resonate. I was interrupting you. But you, you, you mentioned the WHO and you've taken on a, an important role with uh, a, a particular group within the WHO. Tell me what you have done to inform this and bring countries together in these common goals that you've been talking about to, to make health a shared value, a shared global value. Sure. Um, well, first of all, this council that I'll be chairing, uh, which is called the Council for the Economics of Health for All, will be bringing together a global economists to really help who the World Health Organization think about the economic side of health for all. And it's, you know, how it's been framed in the past was that you need to invest in health so it's good for the economy. Um, or if we invest in health, then people are more resilient, they're more healthy, and that'll be good for the economy. We need to reverse that logic. We need to say that we need to actually invest in, in health and health for all, you know, global health systems, which really we've all woken up to how important they are, right? Because we're only as healthy as our neighbor is um, globally, on our street, in our city, na nationally and globally. Um, by investing in health for all and having that as the objective, then we need to backtrack and ask, well, what are the different systems, including the economic system and how we do budgeting, how we think about the role of innovation policy, industrial policy, public procurement, public-private partnerships, uh, and, and, and the investment that's required in a health system seen as a long-run investment, not just a you know, short-run increase in our cost uh, you know, expenditure, the deficit. All those kinds of issues of long-termism and how we value um, a health system that we were you know, talking about before really requires a framing. And we don't have that framing, or it's not as strong as it could be right now. So that's what the council will be doing and it will be launched in January. Um, but what I've been trying to do globally around this issue, and, I, and I'm writing about this or I've written about it in this book that's coming out in 2021, is what does it mean to do exactly that, which is put at the center of economic policy a goal, right? 
so that it's not just about funding a health system in and of itself, but you know, health for all or the vaccine, if it has to be universally available and accessible, that's different from just saying race for a vaccine. So to have a goal-oriented form of policy is very different from just kind of dispersing funds here and there to small companies, to particular sectors, particular types of businesses, or particular types of even citizens. So, you know, this is why I often go back to the moon landing, because, you know, that was such a huge global effort. It required lots of investment from both the public sector, of course, it was led by the public sector, but there was lots of private initiative. There was companies like General Electric, Motorola, uh, Honeywell, that were part of that you know, investment in innovation machine, which got us to the moon and back again in one generation, which was the goal that Kennedy set. So the real question is, could we be as ambitious as that and formulate really concrete goals that require that intersectoral investment in innovation, but around the biggest challenges that we have today around inequality, around global hunger, around our oceans that are full of plastic, around climate change, polluted cities. Um, and so to have this mission-oriented approach really requires redesigning policy in order to achieve that. And it means that the grants that governments give, loans, public procurement, or prize schemes are focused on outcomes. And you know, I believe that's possible. And if it's not going to be done, then it's going to be really hard to solve these. Uh, you know, I keep coming back to these SDGs because I want the world to remember how I, important they are. Because we only set them five years ago. <laughs> <laughs> they absolutely true. So we have a few more minutes, and I'd like to ask you a couple of questions that have come in from listeners. Um, I'm going to start with Charlie Hale. I'll read these from Massachusetts, who asks. How can economic growth be decoupled from unsustainable resource consumption? It's a great question. Um, and it's especially that decoupling that's important, because otherwise we sometimes get into these static debates about growth or degrowth. And really the question is, how do we, you know, first of all, admit that growth has not just a rate, but a direction, and we've had the wrong direction. So rendering our growth more sustainable means producing differently, distributing differently, consuming differently. And so, you know, for example, if we are going to have a carbon neutral city, you know, coming back to a mission like that at the city level, that's going to require all sorts of different services that don't exist now. So, you know, it's, it's not about saying we're going to do less and we're going to grow less. We're just going to grow a different way. And that, you know, that will require new forms of jobs, new forms of services, and new ways to produce output, for example, so that, you know, the obsolescence time is much longer. Denmark, by the way, today, which, you know, Denmark is a tiny country, but because they've really taken sustainability quite seriously and, and you know, had these kind of city level missions that I was talking about before, they have become the number one providers to China of high tech green digital services to help China, you know, achieve one of its goals, which is, you know, spending 1.7 trillion on greening its entire manufacturing base. And that includes energy friendly technologies. So it, that requires a certain type of service, right? So if we could grow our economy by producing, you know, services that are about sustainability and the full power of digitalization, not just to create kind of gadgets, but you know, to, to foster sustainability in old sectors like steel to help them reduce their material content, that's, you know, you can grow in that way. So another quick question from our, our reader, we're running up out of time a little bit, but Brent Nelson from Colorado asks, how can we get more funding for foundational research to create the next generation of technologies to tackle the difficult to decarbonize areas of the economy? A big question, but maybe you can give us a brief answer. Mm. Sure. I mean, my, my, the book I wrote before The Value of Everything was called The Entrepreneurial State, where I look at, you know, some of the biggest technologies that we've had in innovations like the Internet. Not only were they publicly financed, so was GPS, but they came out of organizations that were problem oriented. Right. So the Internet came from trying to get the satellites to communicate. And so really the question is, how can we pose really challenging questions around what is required for a proper and global green transition and use that? to foster as much bottom-up innovation as possible, but that's not gonna happen without a healthy kind of uh, innovation system. We need proper basic research, we need applied research, but we also need institutions that really foster the dialogue between basic and applied. 
And, you know, but it also requires patient long-term finance. So many of the most innovative uh, companies that have benefited from, you know, basic research that was made available required long-term finance, not the kind of inpatient exit-driven finance that, you know, for example, venture capitalists often want to exit through an IPO or a buyout. That often rushes the scientific process, which means that a lot of companies that receive that kind of short-term finance end up, you know, issuing, you know, a, an initial public offering, but not then really producing anything. That's what happened in the biotech sector. Um, lots of PLEPOs, productless IPOs. And so really what we need to do is look at the whole kind of national innovation system in terms of its, its health across the whole innovation chain, but especially ask the most bold, difficult questions that we can to drive the problem solving uh, that's required. And again, that's what got us all the different technologies that make our iPhone smart and not stupid. <laughs> well, you described yourself as an optimist at the top of the of the interview, and uh, you've given us a lot to think about. Thank you very much for joining us today, Mariana. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to have you. I'll be back shortly with former Democratic presidential candidate Tom Steyer, who was also the founder of NextGen America. Um, stick with us. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. Hello, I'm Elise Labatt, and today we're talking about the relationship between governments, markets, and people, and how the economy can be structured to meet society's biggest challenges. Today, the William and Laura Hewlett Foundation launched the Economy and Society Initiative, a new common sense approach to how the economy works, one to replace neoliberalism, which has been the mainstay of economic policy for decades. Joining me to talk about this is Jennifer Harris. She's the director of the New Economy and Society Initiative at the Hewlett Foundation and directed the foundation's two-year-long efforts to develop new ideas for economic policymaking. And Felicia Wong, president and CEO of the Roosevelt Institute, which is a Hewlett grantee. Now, Jennifer, let's start with the new initiative Hewlett announced today. Now, you say the goal of the initiative is to find a new intellectual paradigm to replace neoliberalism. Now, those certainly are weighty terms, but let's start with what neoliberalism is and why we need a new framework. Sure. Yeah, you're right. These uh, intellectual paradigms is, is really just a fancy term for exactly as you described it at the outset, which is a new common sense uh, for how the public understands um, how the economy operates, the goals it should serve, and how it should be structured as a result. And uh, in the last couple of years, we've spent looking at how these paradigms matter, uh, how they how they sort of evolve one to the next. It's fairly clear that these paradigms have always been with us. Before neoliberalism, it was um, Keynesianism. Before that, it was laissez-faire liberalism. And before that, it was mercantilism. Um, and, and they're really never right or wrong so much as they are useful. The test of their value is really their utility as a practical problem-solving matter. And so when it comes to neoliberalism, uh, which is, you know, in a nutshell, uh, just a, a view that markets are efficient and uh, kind of populated by rational actors pursuing uh, their own self-interests as such that the government's highest value is to simply get out of the way, uh, which means things like uh, tax cuts and deregulation had a quick path thereafter, uh, that, that it's just not useful. Uh, that, that way of understanding the economy uh, is not up to task uh, to today's problems. Uh, whatever the case may have been 40 years ago, we're not going to simply put a price on carbon and solve climate change. We need much more uh, aggressive uh, you know, public measures as just one example. So, Volusia, your institute is a great of this new Hewlett initiative and has tried to answer the problems with this neoliberalist emphasis on free markets, deregulation, unchecked trade. And so there's a lot of debate on how this could be done. In your view, what does this alternative approach look like to deal with some of these big challenges Jennifer just mentioned, like wealth and racial inequality and climate change? You know, I think at core, the alternative to neoliberalism is quite simple. It means we need to be thinking about a robust, direct use of government to structure the economy and to help people. And in particular, we need to be helping people who have been left out systemically and historically uh, by a private sector driven economics. That could mean people who are left out because of race, because of gender, 
or because of geography. Now, beyond this idea of a robust direct use of government, uh, there are a lot of debates. Some people think that it's important that government be used to structure the rules under which uh, companies operate. So those are the kinds of people who are really worried about very large companies and the ways in which they control entire markets. Those are kind of the antitrust people. Other people are looking to see that government should provide things that the market doesn't. Government should provide healthcare, government should provide housing, which certainly uh, not all Americans have uh, equal access to. And we really should, we are a wealthy country. Now, some people think that government should actually provide an innovation uh, direction or a North Star. Those kinds of people think that government can actually invest in order to lead us towards a decarbonized and greener economy. So these are competing, but in some ways also complementary ideas. What are all the different ways that you can use government to solve real problems? Um, and the thing that I think all people who are thinking about this and really building policy around these ideas, the thing that we all have in common is the idea that our government actually has to be democratic. That's a small d, democratic. Government actually has to work for real people, and that means real people need to have access to and understand and ultimately trust their government in order for government to uh, help structure a healthier set of economic outcomes. So Jennifer, there's a, mo a movement underway, if you will, with people like Felicia looking for these new solutions. So what are some examples that we can already see of this movement at work? Yeah, I think movement is the right term. I think it really will require a, a you know, a, set of actors from a number of backgrounds, disciplines, everything from people inside the academy across economics, political science, law, to uh, movement and organizing leaders, to faith-based leaders, to uh, you know, think tanks and, and policy and political um, you know, experts. And uh, it, the, our job, I think, at Hewlett is not to find the answers so much as to see the important debates and uh, to help of harness a lot of this talent and set a collective gaze. And I think we're already beginning to see the early fruits of that. Uh, just kind of one or two quick examples. Uh, there's a burgeoning movement within the legal academy known as law and political economy that is very much um, sort of styling itself as a rejoinder to the law and economics movement uh, that was di a direct outgrowth of uh, the kind of Chicago school uh, form of neoliberalism 40 years ago. Uh, and the law and political economy movement is uh, sort of attempting to um, kind of push back on a lot of the, those free market ideas that you know, very quickly came in to um, dominate how we think about regulation, things like cost and analysis. To kind of, so the law and public economy movement, I think, will give us um, you know, a, a new set of tools and a new uh, set of way of looking at the law and how law structures market. And um, I think on the, uh, in the right of center uh, side of the spectrum, um, and friends from the progressive uh, ecosystem like Roosevelt and, and partners there. Uh, we are also supporting um, grantees on the right of center, uh, new efforts like American Compass or Encast, uh, and who are beginning to um, sort of really break, make a break with libertarian ideas and rethink uh, some of these foundational questions about how best to achieve um, things like freedom and the role that government might need to play uh, therein. Well, they sound like complicated terms, but it's really just a whole new way of approaching economics, economic policymaking, and, and how we take on those big challenges today. Thank you, Jennifer Harris and Felicia Wong. And we look forward to seeing how this develops in the months and years ahead. Now let's turn it over to the Washington Post. And now back to Washington Post Live. Welcome back. If you're just joining us, I'm Francis Steed Sellers, a senior writer at the Washington Post. And I'm very pleased to welcome now former Democratic presidential candidate Tom Steyer. I can't hear Francis. He's also the founder of Next Gen America. Welcome to Washington Post Live, Mr. Steyer. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you. Your organization, Next Gen America, focuses on mobilizing young people to engage with politics and elect um, pro-climate Democrats. What's the mission now going ahead? Well, I don't think our mission has changed, Francis. You know, I believe 40% of American potential voters 
are between 18 and 35. Traditionally, they voted at half the rate of other Americans. When I started Next Gen America eight years ago, the idea was to have a, a representative democracy across age groups so that in fact, we'd have the kind of decisions that reflected the broad will of Americans. And in particular, young people are not just the biggest generation in American history, they're the most diverse generation in American history and they're most progressive Americans. So for the last eight years, it's been the goal of NextGen to try and make sure that they are registered, engaged, and that their voices are heard because they're really important voices. And that's something that absolutely had a profound impact in 2018. It had a profound impact in 2020. And I expect it to have a profound impact going forward. Do you believe it's going to be harder to keep people mission focused without the immediacy and drama of an election in the immediate future? Well, I think that from a political standpoint, elections always raise the temperature and draw people's attentions. But one of the things that we believe about uh, grassroots is that it's important to be there 12 months a year. And in particular, when you think about climate and justice, these are issues that are front and center in America right now. They were front and center in the presidential campaign. And I expect in 2021, those issues which are absolutely critical to young voters will continue to be at the center of the American debate. So what would your advice be? What are your, the, the top three policy objectives for this incoming administration? Well, I, look, this administration made a clear commitment in the Biden-Harris campaign to climate. They made a clear commitment to justice and they made a clear commitment to addressing the pandemic. So, you know, I think that in the ca campaigns are important because they really speak to what the priorities are of the people running. And I think it's very clear what Joe Biden and Kamala Harris were standing for. And I think that they're going to address, it's going to be a question, you know, the old political cliche, you've got to be able to walk and chew gum. I think that there are going to be at least those three absolutely critical priorities. They're going to have to happen, you know, from day one. And it's clear that the Biden-Harris administration will be addressing them and not just addressing them separately. I think one of the critical points about this campaign was the recognition, for instance, that climate is not just about climate, that every sector of government impacts climate, that in fact, addressing climate means also creating millions of good paying union jobs, that addressing climate also means specifically addressing and redressing the issues around environmental justice and the pollution that's disproportionately concentrated in underserved black and brown communities. So I think what we're going to see is not just siloed policy responses, but in fact, responses that cut across sectors and different departments of the government to address underlying issues that are inherently connected and you know, can only be addressed together. But in many parts of the country, this remains a political tightrope, right? We saw President-elect Biden walking back his comments about transitioning away from fossil fuels at the end of one of the debates. Um, how do you see weaving this or walking this tightrope going ahead, or do you think it will move more clearly in one direction? Well, I think that one thing that you know about Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, and Joe Biden made this very clear during the campaign, is that he never thinks about climate or any other issue without having the dignity and rights of working families and working Americans in the front of his mind. And so it is going to be, you know, any approach to climate is gonna include awareness about the rights and needs of working families and working Americans across the country. And I think, the old idea that there's going to be a trade-off overall between growth and prosperity and dealing with environmental problems, that whole framework, I think, has been disproved. That in fact, addressing our climate needs is going to be a way of creating millions of good-paying jobs, union jobs across this country at a time of very high unemployment. 
And I think that it's so, going to be, I, I know they're going to be sensitive about specific people, specific workers, specific regions to make sure that these are not empty promises, that in fact, you know, they are all being addressed so that they are held harmless as we go through this move to a clean economy. I think that's in the front of their minds. But I also think it's true that overall, this move to clean energy is both necessary from a climate standpoint, it's also necessary from an economic standpoint. The world is going to have zero emission vehicles. They need to be made in the United States by American workers, not in Shanghai, not in Frankfurt. They need to be made here. We can lead, Americans need to lead. We need to lead in terms of dealing with our, cri our crisis in climate, but we also need to do it from an economic standpoint. And honestly, American business and American markets have moved. They're ready for this leadership. They're ready to lead in the marketplace. We need to make sure that happens because if it doesn't happen, that is going to be bad for American working people, American jobs, and American wages. So you came to this position of advocacy and politics from a long career, as you referred to, in the private sector. But drill a little bit more deeply into this process of talking to business leaders. How do you persuade them about the profitability of moving towards green, a greener future? Well, Francis, I think they've moved. And I have been talking to business leaders mm -hmm. since the election. And you know, I can just give you a couple of quick anecdotes. I mean, American, for, for instance, JP Morgan has said that they're going to run their book, their loan book, according to the Paris Accords. JP Morgan traditionally was the leader in backing frontier exploration for oil and gas. That's a dramatic statement and a dramatic move. If you look at the valuations of ExxonMobil's value as a company in the marketplace peaked in 2003. You know, there are collections of clean energy projects that you've never heard of that are public companies that have higher valuations than ExxonMobil does today. The market has moved. If you look at the valuation of Tesla versus the valuation of the traditional big American car companies like GM and Ford, Tesla's multiples of their value in the marketplace today. And I am seeing and talking to people who want to address clean energy, want to participate in the move to clean energy, both here and abroad, who think that they can make a lot of money raising tens of billions of dollars to put into these new technologies and these new products. So I don't think we need to convince American business that this is the way the world is going. I think they know that. I think that broadly they're behind that. There's an organizational task here. We have to make sure that the framework is there to support them in succeeding and leading the world. But I don't think we need to convince them that the time is now. I think they already know. Does um, carbon taxing have a role in this future that you see? Is it part of a sustainable solution? Look, in California, you know, my home state, We've tried everything and all of the solutions that people are talking about have been tried at one level or another in California. We've had a cap and trade system in California since 2007. And do I think that that's been part of the solution here? Yes, do I think that that's been the biggest driver of the solution here? I know that it hasn't been. I know that this has been a suite of things. And what you really see from the campaign from the, and what you're going to see from the Biden-Harris administration, what you see in the transition, is a commitment to making sure this works, a commitment to prioritizing it, and an awareness that there's not going to be one single solution, that every sector is going to play its part, and that, in fact, it's going to be a government-wide solution to a global problem. And so, therefore, the, you know, it's not going to be the silver bullet that saves us. It's going to be an attitude that permeates government, that permeates this whole administration, and that makes, you know, literally thousands of decisions with an awareness of climate in, the, in their head. Do you think that free market capitalism, the system that, that you've profited from so for such a long time, is responsible for much of the environmental, de environmental degradation that we've suffered from in the past four decades? Well, Francis, I don't think there's such a thing 
as free market capitalism. Every market has rules. You know, I mean, the simplest point, you know, if you have a marketplace in a town, it has a location, people have spots where they're allowed to sell. There are times when it opens and times when it closes. There are rules associated with that market. And so I think we've seen that the unchecked capitalism in America has led to a number of profound inequalities and mistakes that reflect not the idea that capitalism itself is bad, but the unchecked capitalism, which we've been pursuing, absolutely needs to be reformed. And so do I understand that if you don't put a price on pollution, that people pollute? I think I got that one in Econ 101. <laughs> Ultimately, do you think um, private industry can be uh, responsible for societal well-being or, or not? Can it be entrusted with societal well-being? Well, let me put it to you this way. It is the government's job to set a framework based on the values of the American people so that private enterprise acts in a way that works for our society broadly. And that's, you know, when you, that's why I said there's no such thing as free market. God did not create a free market with no rules. That, that is not what we're looking for. We're looking for a society which, where the government sets up rules so that, in fact, the profound pursuit of profit from businesses works for everybody in society, not just the people running the businesses. And that's something, there's no way you can expect people running businesses to reflect the deepest values of Americans across the board. I think if you expect that, that you're gonna be profoundly disappointed. It's not appropriate. The values of, American, of the American society and of Americans broadly are expressed through our political system and our elective system. And that's exactly what Joe Biden and Kamala Harris represent. They represent the will of Americans to redo our society in a more just way. And they specifically ran on climate. They, you know, the ads, they ran ads on climate. It, they discussed it in every debate. They were extremely forthright and committed. And it was critical as somebody, NextGen is a young person's organization. Joe Biden's approval rating from young voters in May of 2020 was minus 22%. In October, it was plus 23%. It moved 45%. That is unheard of. And a huge part of that was the fact that he understood, was passionate and knowledgeable about, committed to addressing climate change. And so that is how our society is supposed to work, that people running for office express the values that they intend to pursue as elected officials and people get a chance to see that, support that, and then hold them to the values that they have been running on. And that's exactly how it's supposed to work. And that's what's supposed to happen in our capitalist society, that the rules are set up so that the people running corporations can't take advantage of other Americans. That, they're, that when they pursue their own selfish interests, which is the way capitalism works, that in fact, there are rules to make sure that what they're doing advantages all of us. That's what's supposed to happen. And that, that, that's how this system is supposed to work. And that's what is gonna happen going forward. That's encouraging. What do you make of the Business Roundtable's commitment to changing its purpose and putting environment and a broader selection of stakeholders <clears throat> at the center of that? Is that a, a step in the right direction, the direction you're talking about? Look, I think that's absolutely appropriate. You know, I think that I was saying earlier, I think businesses understand this is the way the world's moving. You know, one of the things, Francis, that I noticed was that in the second and third quarters of this year, if you looked at the loan books of large American banks, the number of non-performing loans in the oil and gas sector exploded. So that, you know, they, they, they might have three to 4% of their total loan book in oil and gas loans, but it might be 40 to 50% of their non-performing loans. So not only do people leading businesses get a chance to see which way the world is going from reading the paper, they also get real-time feedback on an economic basis 
about how the world is working. They can see how valuable Tesla is. They can see the cost per kilowatt hour of clean energy versus fossil fuel energy. So I think it's absolutely appropriate for the business roundtable to be moving with the times to know that the moment has arrived, the market has moved. If they don't do that, they're in effect not just standing up against some political wish, they're pushing back against the world, they're pushing it back against the facts, they're pushing back against the science. And, and I don't expect that. I, you know, I believe that those guys are responsible and are going to try and move with the times. And I think what you just described is them doing just that. Great. Where are you steering investment these days to benefit climate change? And where are you recommending that other institutions and individuals steer investment? You know, the funny thing is, Francis, is that when I left my business eight years ago as a professional investor, I basically stopped running investments personally. And in particular, I made it clear that I would make no personal investment that would profit me in clean energy because there was a meme that was uh, that I was trying to push these policies so I could get rid of get rich off clean energy, which was entirely untrue, but I wanted to take it off the table. So instead of being in, uh, investing directly and making investment decisions in different products around clean energy, and I can talk to you about that, but my investment has been in young people. You know, if you, it, when I think about what have I put money into, what have I created from a business standpoint, what have I, you know, concentrated where I can give you detailed, you know, investment advice, it's how to work in terms of empowering young people like NextGen. We started a nonprofit bank in California 15 years ago about how to stand up for, make loans to people based on environmental sustainability, economic justice, and supporting businesses owned by women and people of color. You know, I have been, those are the, that's actually how I've been running my investment portfolio. I have outsourced the actual decisions you know, in terms of my portfolio, and I would be the wrong person to make those advice. What I've been doing is trying to build a framework so that our society in large addresses the issue that I'm most passionate about. Tell me a little bit more about this on the on the very personal level and up to the broader level. Obviously, you ran for president, but you also have a, a small sustainable farm, I think, that you're working on. And then the middle of the banks and other charities you're involved in. How does all this tie together in moving, shifting things forward uh, in, in a day in the life of Tom Steyer? Well, I mean, if you think, you know, we started a regenerative ag ranch probably 15 or 20 years ago, recognizing that regenerative agriculture, that in fact, raising animals in a way that net sequestered carbon in the, so in the soil was gonna be critical in terms of going forward. And now, you know, we're starting to see, a, I think a nationwide broad regenerative agriculture movement, one that, you know, we've been trying to anticipate and participate in so people can understand that you can be more productive, more profitable, restore your soils, raise animals in a humane way, and also sequester carbon and do justice, you know, from the standpoint of climate. And so, you know, when you look at that, you know, that's an action in the real world. Our bank is an action in the real world that expresses our values. NextGen is an action in the real world trying to get things done you know, trying to t do things that stand up for the values that I believe in the most. And so, you know, our ranch, we've worked with people from around the world about what it looks like from the standpoint of having a natural world and an agricultural sector that protects, you know, the physical world for the future that actually is regenerative and restorative at the same time that we're raising really healthy food and you know making it possible that as an example that ranch also morphed into a program to supply direct farm to table food healthy direct food for the kids in the public schools of California we supply you know we are involved with a program that deals with a third of the public schools in California who deliver a billion meals 
to kids a year. You are also deeply committed to criminal justice reform and racial justice. How does that tie together with this passion for climate? I don't believe, Francis, that we can separate the concepts of justice, economic justice, racial justice, from environment and climate. To me, this is a, you know, every so-called climate proposition that I've been involved with, every program and policy has started with environmental justice, with an awareness that our society has systematically concentrated poison, which is the actual, it's not pollution, it's poison in underserved black and brown communities. And it's critical if you're going to address the environment broadly, climate broadly, that you start with that knowledge, those people in those communities. And if you do that, and if you are addressing that specific issue and you have leadership from those communities, you will get a, a smart climate program. You will solve the, the, the global issue. But if you're not dealing with the local issues, if you're not dealing with the justice issues and the moral issues at the very heart of poison, then I don't believe you will solve those global issues. I don't believe that you can then go there and then try and sweep that issue, those communities, those people in at the back. That's where you start. And if you do that, that's been the way we've addressed every environmental issue. That's been our coalition. Those are people who I have learned a great deal from, who I have you know, unlimited respect for, who I love to partner with, and who I believe are critical to any success that I've participated in and any success that we'll have going forward as a state, a country, or a globe. If we don't have that, we will not succeed. Thank you. Before we close this afternoon, I have a couple of questions I'd like to ask you from our audience, and I'll read them out to you. Um, Letitia Charbonneau from Canada asks, how can pension fund managers be convinced to divest from fossil fuels and related industries and invest in clean energy? <laughs> so obviously the divestment uh, fight has been one that has been going on for a long time. And I have tried to convince um, endowments, foundations, and pension funds, as well as individuals, that first of all, being invested in the fossil fuels is the investment equivalent of catching a falling knife. I don't know if you ever heard that expression, Francis, but it's when you have an industry that's um, shrinking. There may be certain times where you get a short upturn, but long-term, you're, you're not investing for the long-term and it's the equivalent of catching a falling knife. You normally get bloody hands. And I think that that's turned out to be true. But beyond that, I think when, as an investor, I think there are two things you need to do. One is you need to be investing in things that are gonna grow. That is how you succeed as an investor, having a, a concept and a decision that includes a positive outcome because that's actually how you make money. So that's the first point. I think the second point is this. The real point about divestment was about making a statement that in particular, if you are, a, I think it was a clear investment thesis, but I think beyond that, there was a statement that even if it were gonna be profitable, that is not something, you know, there is a statement needed to be made that it's time for us from a safety, health, and justice standpoint to be moving towards a clean economy. And to the extent that that is part of the mission of your, of your life or your institution, it's important to be on the side of that. And I've made those two arguments for a long time. I think they are now getting increasing uh, support. I think some of that is because what I said about catching a falling knife is increasingly obvious to people. I think that you know ExxonMobil did peak in, in value as a company in 2003. And so I think that the investment thesis has turned out to be correct. And I think that to the extent that your values aren't aligned, I think it's important. And I think Nelson Mandela made this point very specifically in terms of South Africa. 
that there is a chance to make a statement about values here, particularly for institutions and people who have those values, that it's important to make to each other and to the world. I am not going to forget that metaphor about catching a falling knife. Tom Steyer, <laughs> thank you very much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. Francis, thank you so much for having me. It's been my pleasure. I'm sorry we haven't had more time to talk today. Thank you, everybody, for joining Washington Post Live, and please join us for tomorrow's programs. At 11 a.m. tomorrow, my colleague David Ingvatius will be interviewing Accenture CEO Julie Sweet. That's 11 a.m. Eastern. And then at 2 p.m., uh, we have Robert Bresson from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. He's the chair of that foundation. And GW, George Washington Public Health Professor Lena Wen. Don't miss those shows tomorrow, and thank you very much for joining Washington Post Live. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com. Spring is in full bloom. Are your finances? With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, you can build credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments, all with no annual fees or interest. With Chime's Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com build. That's Chime.com build. Chime feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com disclosures for details.